You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Hello, everyone. Hopefully, you're all doing well. It's, uh, it's a joy to be gathered here together to worship and grow in the Word together. And uh, on that end, last week, we started a new sermon series through 1 Corinthians titled United in Christ. Uh, we're learning all about what it truly means to be part of a Christ-centered community, worshiping and working together as, as His body for God's glorious purposes. And uh, we're learning all about this from a church that was divided. Uh, Last week we discovered that the church in Corinth, to which the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to, had become separated by factions and and schisms, and and a lot of what was causing this division was from cultural and religious influences coming in from outside the church. And and this is not a surprise, since since most, if not all, the believers were first-generation Christians and would have, would have grown up steeped in their Greco-Roman culture and their customs and, and religions, which would have been hard to break out of, uh, especially due to the fact that the Greeks held a strong belief in what we now call syncretism. Everyone say syncretism. And that's the idea that, that uh, religions and philosophies and belief systems can be combined together and, and unified. Uh, ironically, though, or maybe not ironically, it seems that in adding or, 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 br- or bringing in worldly philosophies and human wisdom and belief systems into the faith actually had the opposite effect of unity. Instead, it caused power-hungry factions, boasting, and self-absorption, uh, ultimately keeping them from knowing and experiencing together the true wisdom and the power of the cross. Of Christ, and so this is what Paul is addressing and is uh, um, addresses next in his letter to them, basically telling them, "Duh, of of course this isn't working out for you, right?" And and "duh" is that old of a word; he used it back then. Um, I should warn you as well. We have a lot of scripture that we're going to try to get through this morning, so sorry, not sorry. It's it's good. Uh, 1 Corinthians, if you want to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1, we'll start at verse 18, and then we're going all the way to uh, chapter 2, verse 5. So Corinthians 1, 18, it'll be on the screen in the back for you as well, thanks to our awesome PowerPoint team. All right, 1 Corinthians 1, 18, 2 to 5. It says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. 
But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Man, as a, as a pastor, I'm, I'm so thankful for the last part of this passage uh, that says he preached not with lofty speech or with wisdom, but rather in weakness and fear and much trembling, uh, especially on those Sundays when I'm, when I'm feeling like I did a poor job of delivering the message. I'm so thankful for the reminder that, that the power of God working in our hearts and in our lives isn't determined or predicated on my public speaking skill set, but rather on the message of the cross and the work of the Holy Spirit to illuminate it and give it power. I'm so thankful for the fact that it's not about me. I'll always do my best, sure, and, and God has called me as, as his vessel, which I take seriously and, and prayerfully, of course. But in the end, it's not about how eloquent I am. It's not about how persuasive or entertaining I am. It's not even about how clever or intellectually stimulating I am. What changes our hearts and, and draws us to repentance through faith is simply, yet powerfully, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that Jesus humbly and willingly bore our sins upon himself at the cross as our perfect sacrifice, so that by his grace and in the power of his resurrection, all who believe by faith can be forgiven, filled by his spirit, and adopted into eternal life as sons and daughters of God the Father in his kingdom. Amen? Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So it's not about the delivery of the message. It's about the message because it's the message of the cross and nothing else which holds the power to save. Which, which by the way, also means that none of you need to be experts in speech or master apologists in theology to share the gospel. Right? Again, it's not about how it's delivered. What matters is that it is delivered. Uh, in, in the 18th century, there was a revival which broke out, and the preacher, Jonathan Edwards, whom, whom God used as a catalyst for it, was, was supposedly known for, for preaching his sermons by simply just looking down at his notes the whole time and reading them. Right? He'd just stare at his notes. No pizzazz, no flair, no boisterousness. And yet... His message brought spiritual revival. People were repenting and being saved and giving their lives to the Lord in faith. Because like Paul writes, he, he decided to know nothing among them except Christ crucified. 
He called people to repentance through the word of the cross. And the spirit moved powerfully in people's hearts and lives. So that as Paul writes in verse 5, faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. As one of my commentaries exclaims, it says, Paul intends that the Corinthians' faith might not be superficial, misdirected belief coming from human wisdom, but a real Christian faith generated by the power of God. This was, this was an important reminder for the church in Corinth because we can surmise by Paul's writing here that they'd been diminishing the message of the cross in favor of being persuaded by eloquent, eloquent speech and, and trying to prop themselves up by human wisdom. And the reason for this is probably twofold. Um, first, the cross was a folly and stumbling block to their Greco-Roman culture, which Paul tells us. So there would definitely be a temptation, right, uh, to, to diminish its centrality. And secondly, their society also revered and followed after great orators and philosophers. And this was obviously influencing them in their practice as well. Uh, to be honest, not much has changed for us today. So we can definitely learn a lot from them as I expound on these two issues. So first of all, the cross was a folly and a stumbling block to them. Um, arguably one of the earliest known drawings ever found of the crucifixion of Jesus seems to be one that's meant to make a mockery of it. And I have a, a picture for you here. Can you show the other one first? Yeah, there we go. That's uh, called the Alexamanos Graffito. It was discovered on a wall in the city of Rome uh, and is said to have been drawn sometime between the end of the first century and, and the third century AD. So it depicts, obviously, it depicts a person on a, on a cross with a donkey head and another man standing next to it with the inscription under it, which reads, Alexamanos worships his God. And to see it better, there's, there's a picture of a pencil rubbing. Yeah, it looks like a kid's drawing, right? Um, and it might have been. It might have been like some youth drew it. Who knows? But it's most likely meant to mock the focal point of Christianity, Jesus and the cross, as well as this Alexamanus guy for worshiping it, for putting his faith in it. And this ancient graffiti definitely captures the mood of the day, which was that Greek and Roman pagans, and even, even some Jews, were known to mock and deride Christians for worshiping someone who would die on a cross. To them, it was foolishness to believe something like this, to, to worship someone who had suffered and died in a way that was meant for only the worst of criminals, in a way that, that was even socially unacceptable for Roman citizens to speak about because it was offensive to their ears. On that end, a Roman philosopher named, by the name of Cicero once wrote, he says, but the executioner, the veiling of heads, and the very word cross... Let them all be far removed from not only the bodies of Roman citizens, but even from their thoughts, their eyes, and their ears. So the subject of the cross was taboo and socially repugnant to, to even talk about or, or bring up in Greco-Roman cultures. We don't get that today because, you know, we wear crosses around our neck and all that stuff. But, but for them, the cross was only reserved for the worst of criminals who weren't Roman citizens. They didn't talk about it. 
They didn't mention it. They didn't bring it up. It was offensive to them. And this is why Paul writes that the, the cross of Christ is a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Greeks. Because first of all, the, the Jewish nation was, was also looking for a Messiah who would, who would show them uh, um, miraculous or, or powerful signs to, that, that would free them from their political bondage under the Romans. Maybe something like, like the great signs and wonders that occurred with, with Moses during the Exodus. They were looking for something like that, right? They didn't want a, a Messiah who die in the form of weakness. And in the same vein, the Greeks, or the Gentiles, were looking for, for wisdom and philosophy to lead them into the truth. And so in their minds, the, the, there is nothing logical or rational or wise about a God-man dying on an offensive cross like a rotten criminal. It would have also been hard for them to conceive of a God who is spirit to then become flesh in order to be our atoning sacrifice, since most of them would have held on to the philosophical belief that the physical realm was evil. So they could think, well, how could, how could a God become something that's evil? So it would be hard for them to wrap their heads around that. In light of this knowledge, I think there, there would have certainly been a strong temptation then for early Christians in Greco-Roman societies to hide or, or diminish the fact that Jesus died on a cross. Maybe in order to be less offensive or to try to be more seeker-sensitive in their evangelism. Sound familiar? Or to help prevent them from being mocked. And make no mistake, this is a temptation for us as well, isn't it? The culture we live in doesn't like the idea of a cross either. They mock it relentlessly. You know, you go on social media, you see Jesus and the cross being mocked all the time. But it's also mocked in intellectual and pseudo-intellectual spheres of influence. They call it irrational or illogical. And of course, the cross is also offensive to just general unbelievers, especially because it tells them that they're sinners who need to be saved, that they they can't save themselves no matter how good or smart or well-off they think they are. And so it offends their pride, most of all. And so because of this, we as, as Christians are constantly tempted to, to water down the gospel in favor of presenting something to the world or, or to our neighbor which is less offensive to their ears or less likely to get us mocked. But Paul's adamant here. To diminish the word of the cross is to diminish the demonstration of the spirit and the power of God. To put it it another way, lives will only be changed through the message of Christ crucified. Nothing else. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and 22 to 24 again. He writes, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. This brings us to the second issue at play. And it's that, again, in the ancient Greek and and Roman world, philosophy reigns supreme as the source for all ideals and all ideologies, from religion to, to ethics to politics to legal issues to logic and reason to questions about life and, and purpose and everything else. 
ultimately for them, philosophy or wisdom. And wisdom is the discernment and application of knowledge, right? That's not knowledge itself. It's the, it's, it's the discernment and application of knowledge. So for them, philosophy and, and wisdom was the way to understand the gods and to find meaning in life. It was also the means that they would gain influential power and, and political control over a society as well. And, and on that end, most of the philosophers were also known to be expert orators, public speakers, often swaying and, and persuading people to their side, and, and not always entirely based on the context of what they spoke, but on their rhetoric, that is, how well they delivered it, and, and on the big words that they used, and fancy words that they used, they'd, they'd sway people to their side. And these philosophers and orators would also then have followers that would naturally create factions or philosophical groups within, within their cities who would then boast and quarrel with each other about what their leaders taught. And so this very same thing seems to be happening within the church in Corinth, right? They're being influenced by their culture. As, as we learned last week, there were quarreling factions within the church Groups of people who, who followed and boasted in whatever leader they deemed to be the most wise or the best at rhetoric. They'd seemingly taken their eyes off of the power of the cross and, and began to seek the wisdom and philosophical reasoning and eloquence of men's speech. Thinking that it's there that they would find power and wisdom and maybe even God himself. What's interesting is that, that if we go all the way back to Genesis we find the same thing occurring. Genesis 3, 4 to 7. But the serpent said to the woman, he's tempting Eve, right? He says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of the tree, your, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So the, the tempting lie which Satan persuaded Eve to believe with his smooth speech was that she and Adam could become like God and that eating of the fruit would make them wise. It did neither of those things. They gained neither power nor wisdom. It only made them ashamed of themselves. It opened their eyes to their shame. And, and it separated them from the God who had already been willingly and lovingly sharing his glory and all-knowing wisdom with them. For God, of course, is the source of all wisdom. He's interwoven it within all creation. And he gives it freely to those who ask in faith. Proverbs 2.6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He is the source of wisdom. But yet from that moment in the garden on, Mankind has, has repeatedly sought to gain power and wisdom without God or, or an attempt to become like God or even try to find favor with God. 
And the great philosophers of the, the Greco-Roman world sought this as well and even gave off the impression through their intellect and reasoning and eloquent speech that they put their finger on it. But Paul reminds the, the Corinthians that they haven't and they can't. In fact, God wants us to give back that forbidden fruit, or rather to save us from it. 1 Corinthians 1, 19-21. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since... In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God. Through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So if, if people could save themselves through their own intelligence, then, then the kingdom of God would be filled with people who were proud of their own accomplishments. If people could get in through their own abilities, they would think that they were just as good as God. And so Paul's reminding them that the cross was intentionally meant in God's wisdom, to destroy and thwart those who think they're wise, to humble those who think that they can achieve godliness or, or salvation or come to know God on their own merit. This isn't because they could eventually achieve that and God just doesn't want them to. No, it's, it's because they can't achieve it. As Alistair Begg writes, there is ultimately no intellectual road to God. It won't be apologetics that brings you to Jesus it will be the fact that God reveals himself to you. And let's, let's not misunderstand this, though. It's good to grow in knowledge. It's good to be educated. Apologetics are definitely very helpful for us in understanding uh, Scripture and life. Absolutely. And, and many intellectuals have given their life to Christ, like Isaac Newton or Francis Collins, who's the president of the Genome Project. But it wasn't their brain power or, or their knowledge that brought them into a relationship with God. It was the grace of God. It was the word of the cross. Because again, no one can intellectualize or philosophize their way into understanding or knowing the creator of the universe. His, his strength and wisdom, as the Bible reminds us over and over again, is beyond our comprehension. For his foolishness, Paul writes here, is wiser than any man's, and his weakness stronger than any man's, right? Not, not that God has foolishness or weakness, but again, this is, this is referring to the worldly standards of, of foolishness and weakness, namely the cross. And so what seems foolish and weak to the world is God's perfect and divine wisdom and power on display, which undermines all those who think they're wise in their own eyes, which is why he asks rhetorically, you know, where, where are the wise men, those great philosophers? Where are the scribes, those who make laws? Where are the debaters of this age, those who like to argue and, and debate about reason and logic? Where, where are they? Have they ever accomplished or achieved what the power of the cross has? No. Not even close. So he then reminds the Corinthian Christians that most of them weren't, according to the world standards, most of them weren't wise or powerful or, or noble in birth, and yet they were saved. Their lives were changed. So why would they begin to, to look to worldly philosophies or, or boast in the wisdom of man or be easily led by eloquent speech that, that tickles the ears? 
when it was through Jesus, the incarnate power and wisdom of God who rescued them through grace alone. Therefore, they shouldn't be boasting in, in anything or anyone except the Lord. The good news here is, is that the gospel is for everyone. It's, it's calling both the intellectual and the uneducated to come to the cross. Because this isn't about how smart you are. Because the truth is we're all sinful fools who need God's grace and wisdom. And he's offering it freely to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The power and wisdom of God given for us. And of course, this isn't about salvation only. The word of the cross is, is effectual to change us and guide us and strengthen us in every aspect of our lives. As Paul writes, in righteousness, in sanctification, and redemption. So righteousness being the, the moment that, that we're saved by faith and covered in Jesus' righteousness. So through his grace, our guilt of sin is removed and we're justified and reconciled and made right with God. And then in sanctification, which is the, the lifelong process of being perfected and, and made holy and made like Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Right? So it's learning to live a life of, of wisdom and how to walk in righteousness. And then in our redemption. The moment when Jesus comes again to fully redeem us into his kingdom, new heaven and new earth. So again, the, the word of the cross, the power and wisdom of God given to us through Jesus Christ, is meant to lead us and guide us in every aspect of our lives, from salvation to redemption and everything and every moment in between. Which means we don't need to replace it or add anything to it. Right? We don't need to replace it or add anything to it. Though if we're honest, I think our constant temptation as Christians, and historically our inclination, is to just thank Jesus for the cross of our salvation. We'll say, well, thank you for saving me. But that's it, right? And then after that, we tend to gravitate back, like the Corinthian church is doing, gravitate back towards adopting worldly ideals, Things like, you know, the pursuit of happiness and comfort and self-gratification. Or, or we place more value on things like self-help books on how to better ourselves. Or on intellectualism. Or on living our own truth. Or whatever, right? We basically leave the cross behind or, or refuse to let it stand on its own. Thinking we can grow or live by the standards of the world. But worldly ideologies are incompatible with God's wisdom. James 3, 13 to 18, says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and, and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So earthly wisdom always leads to, to, to jealousy to, to boasting and selfish ambition. And the result 
of that is, is, uh, is disorder in every vile practice. And disorder in vile practice is basically how one could describe the state of the Corinthian church at times. Again, as they began to lean on and attempt to combine human wisdom with their faith, they became divided, they became individualistic, they became arrogant, they became sinful. It's no surprise, though, because since, since we also experience that today in the Western church. Whenever worldly ideologies like politics or individualism or post-truth or post-modernism or hedonism, which is the pursuit of pleasure, or syncretism or skepticism or whatever other ism, right? Basically, whenever human wisdom makes its way into the church, or into our lives and, and takes precedent over the gospel and the authority of Scripture, that's when we stop agreeing with one another and being of the same mind. And so, of course, disagreements and divisions and power struggles and quarreling ensue. More than that, that's when we become powerless in our faith. Whenever we take our eyes off the message of the cross in favor of some ideology or opinion the world offers us, or when we try to mix things with the gospel, we're in for a world of trouble. We're eating the forbidden fruit. We're not growing or enhancing our faith. We're becoming powerless and foolish, which is the opposite of what the world promises. But as we're led in the wisdom of God, when we focus on and live the cross-centered life, We'll be peaceable, open to reason, humble, gentle, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere, and righteous in our conduct. And again, this, this divine wisdom is freely available to those who center their lives on Christ. As it says, Jesus is the wisdom of God for us. And this, this next passage explains how we can, we can receive it. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 to 16. It says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has, has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. 
You know, anyone can read the Bible, and anyone can read and dig into the, the wisdom books of Solomon, like Proverbs, or the Gospels and, and sayings of, of Jesus, and, and get that knowledge. But yet only those who are filled with the Spirit of God can grasp the full depth of that knowledge and learn how to discern it wisely and live it out. And the good news is that the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit of, of, who searches the depths of God's mind, is given freely to all those who believe in the name of Jesus. And so through that Spirit, we have the mind of Christ, the wisdom of God. And, and with it, we're able to understand and, and discern the full depths of his word, which has been given to us. The Spirit leads us into all truth, as the word says, into its wisdom, its power for us, which guides us and strengthens us in all areas of life. And so where no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him, it's been revealed to us through the Spirit. Which means the world can mock us for our supposed foolishness for worshiping someone who died at the cross. And the philosophers of this age can deride us and, and call us morons for being old-fashioned and chasing after myths, but they can't see what we can see. They don't know what we know. That through the word of the cross, the mystery and wisdom of God has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ, illuminated in our hearts and in our minds through the power of his Holy Spirit. And so in knowing this, we proclaim, like Paul in Romans 1, 16 to 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So it's the gospel, not, not human wisdom or cunning speech, which saves us and calls us to live by faith into a life of true wisdom and power. So let us now, together, turn from the things of the world and humbly set our hearts and our minds upon the cross of Christ. Thank you.